A Christian mind is not one that is trained to think only about Christian topics. It is a mind that has learned to think about everything from a Christian perspective. Christianity provides a comprehensive view of the world. Christianity is a worldview. Worldviews are the grids. They are the lenses through which we frame all of reality. Hello. How's everyone doing? <laughs> hello. Hello. Can you hear me at the back? Richard, can you hear me at the back? Is this the good volume? Everyone can hear me? Not as loud as me, I don't no think so. Hear me. Am I speaking to myself? <laughs> don't worry, we'll just we'll, we'll start and it will improve as the show goes along, don't worry. <laughs> Amen. Alright guys, thank you so much for coming out to our second live show. Um, on behalf of the Black Bria team, we're looking out here and it's crazy to see that actually we started with a vision maybe like three years ago now and now the Lord has sort of been so kind to us and has allowed us to have a second live show where this is an opportunity for us to sort of spread the gospel um, to people that look like us, that come from our communities. Um, so we, we're going to start off here. I think Swazi's introduced us a little bit. What we want to do for this first panel is to set the context, to sort of survey the landscape and talk about some of the challenges that are facing us um, as black British Christians or black British people just generally. Tope is going to be walking around at some stage with a microphone, I hope, and if you do have a question that you want to drop to the panel or a contribution that you want to make, um, have a look at Tope and then have a look at me or Mary or Israel or Mike and we'll try to bring you into the discussion. But please, begging you, make your contribution as concise and straight to the point as possible. Is that okay? Okay, lovely. Okay, so yeah, I'm Kingsley. Who have we got on the panel? Mary. Israel. And we've got Mike today. So Mike is our special guest. Um, so I think to get you to sort of know who Mike is, Mike, if you were in an elevator and you were meeting someone who you think is a contact that you want to have for, I don't know, the rest of your life, um, how would you sort of like introduce yourself? What would you say in like 30 seconds? Good evening, everyone. My name is, my name is Mike. Um, I only care about one thing really, and that's um, sharing the gospel. So uh, I, I run a charity called Our God Given Mission. And our driving purpose is quite simple, is to equip people to share the gospel to everyone that will listen to them. So that's Mike's, Mike's intro. I'm not sure I could top that. <laughs> what was the question? What how, how would you introduce yourself to someone you're oh, okay. for the first time? Okay. Key message. Okay, cool. So in terms of setting the context, let's jump in and let's have a sort of a big and grand question. And then we'll go in a bit more granular. So as a black British man, Mike, and Israel, and, and as a black British woman, Mary, what would you say is the sort of biggest challenge that you are facing right now? And as a second question, how, if at all, is the gospel impacting how you're reflecting on that? I'll kick it off as I have the mic in my hand. Um, biggest challenge? Biggest challenge. I'm facing right now, wow. Um, I think the first thing that comes to mind is probably my career. Um, as a woman, uh, kind of thinking through um, local church. Wait, people were clicking, right? <laughs> I swear I heard people clicking. <laughs> people were like, yeah, girl. Um, yeah, probably my career, trying to find myself in my career, thinking of things such as the possibility of motherhood, marriage, right. and how that will impact my career. It's kind of like a, a looming cloud. Okay. Um, and also just trying to see how far I can go um, in what I'm doing in a way that honors the Lord. And I think I realize that work, it's actually, you're in uni, you graduate from uni and you realize, wow, like I'm gonna spend the next 40 years, Lord willing, at work. In and work. it's depressing, you're thinking, no. So I think that's probably the biggest challenge. Um, how the gospel speaks to it, is that the second question? Yeah, yeah, how does the gospel um, How the gospel speaks to it. I think it's just having a really good theology of work. I think that's something that I'm trying to have um, just speaking to my friends, really, um, everyone's doing a broad range of careers and you're just trying to see, okay, how do you, when you're at work, honor your employer? How do you redeem the time? How do you ensure that you're working the best that you can to the best of your ability? Mm. Just ba basically just trying to 
have a good idea of when I go to work, the nine to five, the eight, nine, 10 hours for the next 30 years, um, what am I doing with that? And if other things come that may directly impact that, then you know, we'll discuss it when it gets there, really. Um, yeah. Thank Israel, you, what would you say? <laughs> Before Israel I do this all the time. In, guys at the back, there's so many spaces at the front. Come, walk in. We want to see all family. you. Walk through the middle. Yeah, everyone's going to look at you. That's okay. Be comfortable. <laughs> Thank you, Dami. Thank you. Shout out, Osha Dami. It's good to meet you, Mariam. Hello. <laughs> Hello, brother. What's your name? Ali. Malik, Malik, thank you for coming. Look, there's a seat right there. <laughs> Talk about putting people on the spot. We love you, don't we? We love you. It's family. Sisters at the back, there's so much space here. Brother Moffat, Sister Shani are sitting here as well. <laughs> Lovely people. Come sit next to them. Okay, Israel, so what's your reflection on that question? So to the, to the question of um, biggest challenge, I think it would be the competing worldviews. Um, that are really prevalent in our um, society right now. So I know for me personally, and I think the significant amount of people would have similar experiences. I came out, I became a Christian coming out of secondary school. And as I was walking through the Christian journey, I quickly realized that much of my childhood presumed Christianity in the background. Right. And so everyone, broadly speaking, operated with Christian values, Christian worldview, even people who weren't necessarily Christians. Um, but now more and more I'm finding myself in a context where it's, if anything else, the exact opposite, where more and more Christianity is, it cannot be in the frame of reference at all um, when it comes to the way you live your life, the way you interact with other people. Um, I find that in, in this city in particular, there are just so many different worldviews, philosophies, religions, that it, especially when I was younger in university, when I entered university, it was really quite literally overwhelming intellectually because I had people for the very first time telling me, so why aren't you a Muslim? Why aren't you a Buddhist? Why aren't you an atheist? And I was like, because my mom told me Jesus Christ is God. Like, I, d yeah, yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I'm, I mean, I know I'm a Christian, but I haven't done a PhD on religions to be able to give you like, you know, a 20 page review of why all these other religions are not the one that I picked out of the ones I researched and stuff like that. Sure, and so sure. trying to come to a more credible stance um, that gave sort of weight to my Christian faith, that made it more grounded and rooted um, so that as I navigated different social spheres, um, I could not only defend and explain the Christian faith I held, but also be able to apply it creatively um, in different contexts in a way that was faithful, but also wise as to how to actually um, show a vibrant living Christian faith. Wow, full answer. Um, so you've got Mary talking about the issues around work, ambition, and the what ifs that might happen with motherhood and marriage. You've got Israel talking about the competing worldviews. I heard Mike in the background, I'm not sure if you heard this, Mike was mooming and ahhing. So I'm interested to hear, Mike, what your reflections are on this question too. Right, so I thought about this quite a bit, uh, especially before I came. I was grabbing coffee at Starbucks and there are other coffee providers uh, <laughs> available. Um, and I was thinking about well, what, is, what is the one issue that black people struggle with? And of course, black people are not monolith, so I don't wanna, pretend we're all the same. And the best thing I could do uh, is come up with a, a cacophony, if you like, of issues. The first she one would. is. I was gonna <laughs> go cacophony. Yeah, really Drippy, drippy. The first one. Oh, come on, folks. So, 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 so the first one, the first one is obviously historical issues. There are historical issues that we have, right? Um, for a lot of people, a lot guys, of people, guys, 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 people please. love the British flag, and for others, it's actually emblematic of an unwelcome pillaging of resources in Africa. Still unaccounted for, so that's number one. Uh, n number two, I guess, is something we may call tyranny of the majority. Black people make up something like 3.4% of the population in the UK. As such, by virtue of being a minority, there are issues that we face uh, from that. Secondly, you know, I work in the media, and people often say the system's broken. Wrong, it's not, it works. 
for those who it was designed to work for. So there's issues there as well, the, a system not built to work for minorities. Now, when you mix that all together, it can only be described as a, as a cacophony of issues, right? It's lots of different issues. Um, and, and then when you think, well, what does the gospel say about oppression, essentially? Oppression. What does the gospel say about oppression? Well, then I think to myself, well, in, in some ways, and anyone interested in you know, Christology, uh, kind of uh, phenomenology, whatever it is, will say or will know that Christ, in some ways, was a minority, right? Yeah. In some ways. He was born in first century Judaism, in Palestine, so Roman occupied, so as such, he was born in a place where the system wasn't so much built for him, at least if, it, if you think it was built for him, it was a chimera, because really, uh, anyone who's in charge of the Jewish, relig uh, the Jewish synagogues, we know, controlled pretty much the religion. And you know, back then, uh, you know, the, the synagogues were not just... Uh, places for religious enterprises. It was the biggest bank. It was also the center of e-commerce. It was essentially where everything uh, uh, happened, and, uh, and the Romans controlled that. In fact, Caiaphas, in the time of Jesus's, uh, uh, Jesus's uh, birth, who was uh, the high priest then, he was installed by the Roman Empire, right? Emperor. And if you don't believe that, check the northeast of the region. That's literally where they lived. So Jesus himself lived in this context where the system wasn't built for him to, to thrive and to succeed. At least it looked like that in part. So my reflections when it comes to the gospel is two things, just two quick things. One is obviously Romans 8. Romans 8 lets us know that suffering echoes a weight of glory. So, so for me, when I look in the media and I work in, in, in white spaces and I'm in places where oftentimes I'm just thinking, there's so much suffering and, yeah. and what do I do to this? I, I, I remember that, that the suffering of this present time aren't to be compared. So, so in some way, the suffering and the cacophony of issues we have echoes the weight of glory to come. And two, and perhaps more powerfully for me, I think suffering gives us a really great canvas um, upon which we can pay, uh, paint a very jarring picture for unbelievers where they go, you guys are oppressed, persecuted, but somehow you have joy, somehow you forgive, yeah. somehow you have mercy. And, and that's what the gospel does for me personally. And I know there's some things I missed out, but um, those two things are, 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 are what happens when I put on my gospel lenses and I look at this sad cacophony of issues. That's a full answer. Yeah. <laughs> you can clap, you can clap. <laughs> Okay, so, so summarizing, and I think it's going to be quite difficult to do because there were so many great points that Mike sort of raised there. But he, he, he centered in on this issue of being in the tyranny of the majority. So living in a space that wasn't created for us as black people with structures that were not created to push us forward. And he speaks of how the example of Christ and his suffering and the promises of the gospel in relation to suffering helping through those challenges. Now, towards the end of your answer, you mentioned um, setting, as it were, um, a picture for unbelievers to look at where they can say, I see the experiences you're going through. I don't understand the joy that you have. Um, and that brings me to, I think, a second question around when you're talking to people, when you're talking to friends who perhaps don't profess Christian faith, are there any issues that they're sort of bringing up, talking about immensely? Um, and how do you, in those windows of opportunities, speak Christ and speak the gospel? Mm. I, think, I think when I speak to my friends, unbelieving friends, some of the issues that they have of, of Christianity or why they don't believe, I think sometimes to an extent it's relevancy. Um, so that sense in which Christianity is still very archaic and it doesn't really have a direct impact on their life right i think coupled with um they're young they want to live their best life and christianity does pose directly a change and a transformation when you come in obedience to christ um and also i think i think the biggest thing is is this agnostic safety of knowing i don't really know if christianity or x is actually true so let me just stay in the safety of ignorance or just to say okay i don't know if christianity is true but also what about islam what about mm. atheism what about this so it's like instead of me trying to investigate let me just sit in my happy present safe state and not really investigate um so it's so i think at times when i'm trying to prod of course i've got friends and, and i'm aware of the fact that there's one sense in which sin will ultimately keep them away because yeah. coming to christ does require repentance and turning away um but i'm always trying to show them that christianity speaks to 
a plurality of issues. Um, yeah. So, and I think that's why it's helpful that the church does try to engage in, in the best ways it can. Um, so that's kind of my initial thoughts. What about you, Izzy? <laughs> um, I, I, I will start by um, referencing a philosopher, Jamie Smith. Oh. He, wow. he um, has a, or has a series of books on cultural uh, theology and he basically, he starts by painting a picture of this temple um, and he says, imagine you're walking into this temple and you smell the incense. As you walk in, you're ushered through. Um, you see the icons and the symbols that lure you in and draw you in. Um, you go to the priest and the priest offers you um, absolution and you experience this sort of um, mystic joy and presence and you leave with your shopping bag full of products. And he basically says that temple actually is the shopping mall. Um, and what he did in that, I didn't, I didn't describe it well, but what he did in that situation is he says, in our, in humanity, in our societies, um, we have liturgies or practices that teach us to love certain things. And, he's, and he says that it, this is not just true for, re, quote, technically religious institutions like the, the church or the synagogue or the mosque. This is true for even secular institutions like our mall and our governments. And they're all teaching us to love certain things. Right. And they're all teaching us to value certain things so that when you walk into the mall, the way the mall is designed, you think of Westfield, it's designed to draw your eyes to a value and a vision of something that you long for. And when you go there, that exchange with the person over the counter reinforces that you are one step closer to the vision of glory that they've painted for you. Um, and I think for, for us as we're talking to people who aren't Christians, um, the first thing that I really wanna do is to highlight the competing liturgies, the fact that there are other institutions, even secular institutions that, are, that have given them a vision of glory even though they might not use those particular words. And so they might say, oh, you know, I can't be a Christian because um, I want to live my best life now and things like that. But if you break that down and you, sh and you show, actually that vision doesn't lead to your flourishing. It's not designed to make you grow in any meaningful sense as you were meant to as a human. Right. Um, and then the second person I want to reference is Tim Keller. <laughs> <laughs> no surprise there. <laughs> Sorry, we're doing the Keller count, yeah? So that's one. One, yeah? <laughs> we'll keep it at one, I hope. Um, he, basically, he basically draws from Jamie Smith and says, now, if we, if we get the gospel and we apply it to these competing liturgies, one thing we find out that separates Christianity from all these other liturgies, whether they are, you know, um, actual religions or secular institutions is that none of these religions, none of these competing liturgies will ever um, forgive you if you fail to meet up to their standards. Um, the way, the way all, all the other liturgies are built up is that if you fail to have the necessary funds to live the truly consumerist lifestyle, you're left to the dust yeah. to wallow in your failure. Um, if you fail to meet to the standards of um, Islamic perfection, you're left wondering, am I ever truly going to enter paradise? You can go through every single religion, every single secularist um, framework, and you find at the end, it demands perfection on you or nothing, and you're left by yourself. It's only Christianity that says, actually, you aren't perfect, you can't do it on your own, and Christ has taken that burden on himself and taken it off of you. And so it's the only, it's, it's the only worldview, the only religion, the only literature that says, come because you're not sufficient to do it by yourself, not come if you can do it by yourself. Mm. So I think Israel's changed all of our shopping habits for the better. <laughs> um, Mike, I'm gonna bring you in on a slightly different question. So I'm, I'm gonna say one of the things that I experience when I'm talking to some of my friends and I wanna sort of talk to you as my brother and say, bro, what should I, should I be saying, okay? So increasingly we're seeing, and I think this is part of the technological age, we're seeing um, so much uh, trauma on our screens, right? Um, and in particular, when we're considering the issues of race, we are seeing now not just um, reports of things happening um, to people that look like us, that come from our communities, but we're seeing videos now. We're seeing videos of 
acts being perpetrated that we would look at and go, that's, that's murder. And we're, seeing, we're seeing these kinds of things that are happening on such a regular occurrence, um, and we're imbibing these things. Um, and as I'm talking to people, one of the things that they're often saying is, where is the church amidst all of this? Um, where is the voice mm. of the church um, in respect of dealing with social justice? Um, and so the question I have is, um, does, and this is an assumption, it's not my opinion, does the lack of political engagement we have um, at points um, from people who are preachers and teachers of the word of God um, undermine the church's prophetic witness with respect to the world and how things are going? Uh, good question. Um, uh, I hate, uh, you, might, you might want to start a MacArthur account as well. Um, <laughs> one, one thing that, uh, that um, uh, Israel said, is what he said that people want to live their best life. And uh, one thing MacArthur said is, the only way this can be your best life now is if you go into hell. That, that's the only way this will be your best life. So for anyone who's on the edge, um, there's better out there. And I should probably start off now by just pitching my tent, my desires for people to be saved. Um, so for anyone who's in here who's on the edge, I would love to speak to you after. Um, because like, I, I want to share with you what I, at least what I think is true, and I hope this, this event does the same as well. But weren't you saved, essentially? On the social uh, justice point, um, I mean, uh, anyone who's interested in, in, in Christian discourse online will know this is of interest to a lot of people. People talk about it quite a lot. And the term social justice, we know, is coined by Jesuit priest. I forgot his name. I, th I think his middle name's Tarapelli, uh, thereabouts. And he coined it a while ago, um, 1840. I'm just going to guess. Um, and, and back then, and so he was, he was very conservative, and, and so, so, so really, uh, his, his, and really, what is social justice? It's essentially, it's justice, as we obviously can conceive it in our head, uh, with specific reference to kind of civic institutions and how they come together and how structures of power emerge from that. Now, back then, because he's conservative, it was seen as an addition into conservative you know, thinking. How funny is it now that in 2019, if you mention social justice, it would be more akin or consistent with liberal thinkers, right? Or, or, or those on the left, right? Okay. It's, it kind of shows you the ebb and flow of that term, and really the ebb and flow of society, and that at certain times, some things are deemed super important, and as society changes, as it does, as it spins and, 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 and kind of, you know, goes up and down, other things are considered super, super important. That's why my belief uh, really is that the church, yeah. and we have to be careful when we speak about the church, because the ecclesia, we can think about as an, in, in an institutional sense. So there's, a, there's, there's a sense in which when we talk about church, we're talking about the structure of church, and also when we talk about church, we're talking about individuals like myself and Israel and Kingsley and, and, and Mary and everyone, and, and everyone here. I think the church in an institutional sense ought not to get involved in the ebb and flow of society. Why? Because what happens is what we've seen in America. What's happened in America over the past 60 years is we've seen the development of the church as a political cleavage. So in America, evangelicals exist who during Trump's election said, God said you must vote for Trump. And he also paid them. So, it so happened that the church, the bride that Christ is coming back for, is for sale. That, that, that's what happens, that's what happens when the church in an, in an institutional sense jumps into the ebb and flow of society and dances to the tide. What we must, however, do, and what the church must do, and really this is a discourse about rights, which we can talk about, I don't know if we have time, but, but what the church, so kind of interest and will and stuff like that, but what the church <laughs> must do is train up believers who will go out. So what do I do? I, I run a news network called the Common Sense Network, and what we do is we, we engage all sorts of different people from different political cleavages, and we try and get them talking. Okay. That's because I care about that. That's just me caring about that. My church doesn't have to come with me, but the church equips me, empowers me. But the church must not be sullied. 
And, and, and this, is, this, is, this is a thing people must understand. People think about it on a very temporal basis. But what they do is they subject what's meant to be ethereal in quality and they make it temporal also. What, 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 which issue? Let's vote. Let's, let's racism. Okay, no, no, let's do transgender. And we start voting on issues we should confront when really it should be left to individuals within the church to be trained to go out. They go out in different industries. The church, could no, the church couldn't do that because it gets sullied in the process. The world will spin out of control. I hope some of us, I don't know what we believe in here. The world will spin out of control. And what will be left standing is the church, the glorious bread of Christ, there to be seen, to be adored, to be worshipped, to be prescribed glory. That's what will happen at the end of the day. That can't happen if it's dancing around to the tune of the day. So Mike, Izzo wants to jump in. I'm going to... Mike has given us a, a, a full answer and he set out his perspective on that question. Um, and I've seen from the audience some nods and yes and agreements and some, brother, I don't know where you're going with that. <laughs> so I'm going to bring Israel in to offer your sort of, I guess, response to Mike, but also your general answer to the question. What should the church be doing? Big church as an institution, pastors and teachers, small church as individual believers to engage with political injustice, specifically uh, social issues? It's less a response as I think a clarification. Um, and you're free to correct me, Michael, at any point. Um, I want to separate out the church's involvement in the ebb and flow in society from the church in bed with political power. Because I think what you were essentially rebuking, rightly, is the church sticking side by side with the states and being in bed with political power. And I think, every, well, I assume would be an agreement in that um, the, church is, the church only maintains its prophetic witness when it maintains a prophetic distance from the institution, um, the state itself. So that I'm in agreement with. However, I think um, because those two, one, the church being in bed with political power and the church being involved in society were sort of attached together, I want to separate them out and say the church should be involved in the ebb and flow of society, but not as a extension of the state. So I think of just literally the history of the church, um, going all the way back to the earliest centuries, um, during the persecution of the early church, um, you had Roman emperors who, when they were getting reports from um, their juniors about this Christian movement, um, I think it was uh, one of the Roman emperors um, basically said, these Christians care for our people more than we care for them. Such was their involvement with, in the Roman society in the midst of their persecution. You have St. Basil of Caesarea who used his church during a great plague as a refuge for the sick. And Christians died because they were attending to those who were sick whereas everyone else was trying to run away from the plague. You have John Calvin, who at the very same time where he set up the Genevan Academy to raise up preachers, also set up the Diaconate Fund specifically to meet the needs of the destitute and the poor in Geneva. I mean, there are obviously there are lots of examples in church history where the church is actively, as an institution, is actively involved using its specific resources. This is not just individual Christians, this is um, the church saying we're going to use our building to do this, we're going, to, we're going to be involved in society and meet the needs where we are called to meet the needs and be light and salt to the earth, um, but we're not going to be in bed with political power, so I just want to separate those two out. Okay, the, the quick thing to mention is everything you mentioned there, you'll notice that's just justice. That, that's in a social sphere? Well. It's, it's not social justice, because that's a loaded term. This is, this, is, this is where I think the clarification. Justice belongs to the Lord, right? It's, it's, it's God's idea. It's not us. If you think somehow innately you have this desire, yeah, it's not you. Uh, justice, we know in the Hebrew is just misfat, and it's, it's, it's multiple times mentioned in the Old Testament, at least 200 times, right? And it simply means to treat people equitably, right? To, 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 irrespective of whatever kind of you know, thing we self-select for, you are to be treated equitably equitably, right? Now, it's not, it's not just about punishment and, 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 um, and rewards, though. It's also about rights. And it's, it's funny, because what you speak about opens up another discussion, which I don't know if we have the time for, on, on the topic of rights, because this is where it get, it, we kind of get... Because to, to treat social... And you know, I mean, anyone who 
takes a cursory look online knows that social justice isn't just a, a, a term that exists in a vacuum about doing good. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a pretty preloaded uh, uh, concept. And as such, we have to be very careful because when it comes to rights, the question becomes, well, I don't know, again, I don't really want to go into, how many of us here care about the difference between, say, a will right and a benefit, a benefit theory of rights, or like interest rights, which are very different. Interest rights says this, so long as, you know, gosh, we probably I shouldn't have opened this kind of worms, because I'm, okay, I'm, agreeing. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna let it go, because, well, I, I don't mind, but I don't wanna yeah, talk yeah, no, for I get time, you. Like, I get I'll just you. stop, because like, to keep things flowing, but, but okay, I'll stop, I'll stop. <laughs> but, but without, I, no one, people might not be as interested as I, as I think. And well, I'm interested, but, but, continue. Yeah, let's, have a, let's, have a, let's, let's grab tea after. But, um, but, um, but um, my point is, just to kind of wheel back and you know, understand yeah, what I'm yeah. talking too much, is that what you mentioned there is justice. Something that when you are reborn, God imprints in your heart. You have a newfound sense of justice. Even when things aren't consistent with your own, you know, this is, this is going to be a win for me, you still feel a sense of doing it. This is part and parcel of being reborn, being regenerated. It's important to trace it back to God, though. And anytime you have to pre-modify and add a word in front of justice. I no longer see it as just, justice. It's now this preloaded, predefined uh, human attempt at reinventing what justice is, as though God didn't start the whole idea in the first place. As such, the will to care for the people, to feed the people, Jesus did that. That's just what he did. That's what Christians do, right? We don't need to pre-modify it. Hence why I still maintain that you don't need uh, uh, the church to adopt, whether it's social justice or, or uh, I don't know whatever type there is, yeah. uh, you know, out, uh, out, uh, whatever it is. We don't need it. Uh, the, 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 the conceptions we have in the Bible as constituted by God and demonstrated by Jesus, I think, are enough of an example for a Christian to live by. Put it this way, irrespective of what's happening in today's age, looking at the lifestyle of Jesus Christ should be enough. To I, th meet I, th I think that's a, that's a good note. And Israel... <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think, I think that's a good note, and I think there's a lot um, in what Micah said, but also in what Israel said. And I think what it does do is it highlights how differently uh, Christian people can think around these issues. What I want to do before I give Israel the last word on this point, so it's 2-2 in terms of engagement, <laughs> um, uh, is, is ask, is anyone in the audience willing to sort of give their reflection on this question? Um, and I'm, I'm seeing hands up. I'm going to go to Joppe. Can you, can you say your name, your age, and your location before you give your contribution? <laughs> one to win, one to win. So Christine has asked that question. Israel, um, can you give us a succinct definition? Because I think Mike has given us his views on justice and the issues around putting social in front of it. A succinct definition of what you understand social justice to be and then offer your response Thank to you. Mike and then we're gonna push on and go somewhere else. Um, that, that question was actually part of my response in that I think, um, so I'm gonna give two answers to the question um, because I think there are two definitions Broadly speaking, of social justice, there's popular culture definition of social justice, and then there's the academic, um, sort of like strictly philosophical Frankfurt School definition of social justice. Um, popular culture social justice, I think, is simply just understanding that um, people deserve to be treated with dignity and respect, and more specifically, that those who are oppressed or experience any sort of marginalization should be empowered and uplifted in society through social institutions, wherever they may be, whatever they may be, that could be the school, that could be the government, that could be churches, um, to have a footing that is equal to the majority, however we define minority to majority. Um, I think, broadly speaking, that's what the 
typical person is thinking of on the streets of London when they hear the word social justice. The Frankfurt School in terms of social justice is, 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 is that derived strictly out of, um, not strictly, but it's derived out of in part of a Marxist um, philosophy that sees um, humanity is split between two groups, as the split between um, the oppressors and the oppressed. Um, and that's been defined in a number of ways, and that has brought out different theologies like liberation theology in the um, academic sense of that, for, of that term, um, where the goal, because there's the oppressed and the oppressor class, the goal is to create this sort of like strict plane between both by essentially creating a revolution, knocking down the institutions that allow that distinction to even exist in the first place. I don't think people are operating with that framework of social justice when the, the, the average person, when, when you hear the word, I think they are using, they are thinking of doing, giving people dignity and respect, um, treating those who are marginalized with um, a special interest because they don't have the means to support themselves. So I think of, for example, now, okay, let, me, let me actually go to my response. One, I don't mind giving up the word social justice. I'm not committed to it like that. At the end of the day, Christians have existed before the word social justice and will sure. exist even if the word goes out of fashion. Sure. And will continue to do the same thing. I'm not hooked on the word. I do think, however, though, that as Christians who live in a specific context, it makes sense to engage the way the society and culture is broadly thinking. And that isn't the ethereal academic sense. Um, so in that, I, do, I don't have an issue saying um, the church should be for social justice because if I say that in the middle of Camberwell, people are not thinking he's a Marxist. Um, now, could I give that up? Of course I could give that up. I don't, I, like, I'm, not, I'm not committed to the word in any meaningful sense. Um, However, I am committed to the church's active and intentional involvement in society. And I think that's, what, again, when, when we say the word social, people do think of society. Um, and so this is our last thing. Um, so, when I, so when we define it according to the popular culture mm -hmm. definition, mm -hmm. um, I see that being expounded on in the scriptures. So I look back to Proverbs, for example, where in Proverbs 31, um, King Emmanuel, his, his, his mother says to him, speak up for the oppressed. That means that in, in society, there are people who don't have the means to speak up for themselves, but there are people who do have the means to speak up for themselves. And that the king should use his voice, leverage his opportunity to speak up for those who may not have the opportunity to. And I think things like that, Christians can find in the scriptures from Genesis through to Revelation and actually say, hey, to the, to the average person in um, Farrandon, you want to see people treated with dignity and respect, but actually that requires a Christian worldview. That requires an understanding that they're made in the image of God. And then go through the scripture and see why their longing for social justice is a longing for true Christian faith. Mm. 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 Okay, so we're gonna move on slightly. Um, and I think what we can clearly see from the answers given by our panelists is an incredible level of learning. Um, I don't think it's, um, an understatement to say such. Um, and so what I'm gonna do is get a bit of audience engagement before I go to sort of the next question. Um, I'm not gonna get you guys to stand up, but I'm gonna ask you to just put your hands up, okay? So how many of you went to primary school and finished primary school? <laughs> or the equivalent in whatever <laughs> nation you were schooled in? GS1. <laughs> okay, hands down. Okay, how many of you uh, were able to go to secondary school and complete a secondary school and uh, or the equivalent in whatever country you were schooled in. Hands up, including panelists. Okay, I made hands it. down quickly. How many of you went to sixth form or college or some kind of equivalent? Hands up. Put your hand down. Okay, hands down. How many of you had the opportunity to go to university or at university? Hands up. Okay. Um, again, still significantly a majority. How many of you are now working in roles where there was a requirement for you to have a degree. Just hands up. Okay, so what, what we're seeing here, and I think you should have been able to see from the people putting their hands up, is that there is um, 
an incredible amount of learning that's gone on here. A lot of people have had the opportunity to go into education and to therefore uh, reap some of the benefits of education as such. Um, and I, I think that speaks to an issue that I want to come on to, is this issue of upward mobility. So as black people, um, second generation and third generation migrants coming from Africa or coming from uh, the Caribbean have now come and integrated into um, Western culture. What we're finding now is we are part of the generation of people who who actually can have different aspirations to what our parents had, right? So some of our parents came over and it was they were here in a foreign country and were making decisions um, as to sort of how to put food on the table. We're the next generation, perhaps, who now finish their degree and go, hmm, I don't just need to think about putting food on the table, I need to think about what do I want to do? What are my passions? What am I interested in? How do I want to make money, etc.? These issues around upward mobility, I think present a challenge to the church because there are questions now that people are being confronted with that perhaps the church was answering historically that are maybe not as relevant. So how do we as a church speak to people who now go, actually, uh, I know that, you know, uh, there is a God who made everything, um, but I don't really feel my need of him. I don't wake up in the morning and I'm not necessarily concerned where my daily bread is coming from because I'm working a, a 40K job. I'm not, I'm not worried about these things. How do we speak to a generation of black British people who are now experiencing such upward mobility? Yeah, I think it's a serious concern because I think um, depending on where we've come from, uh, if we went to church, the churches we were raised in, uh, especially from an Afro-Caribbean context, first generation, second generation, then the Christianity was pitched in a way of you need God to get to X or you need God to deliver you from this difficult England where you, you need to work twice as hard and God can be your support. Um, of course, that's a mass uh, generalization. But for most times growing up and where I, where I grew up, my mom was telling me like, if you want to make it in life, you need the Lord. If you want to make it in life, you need God. And then you get to like second, you get to secondary school, obviously everyone's a Christian, depending on what church you went to or what school you go to. You get to uni now, and of course your mom's telling you like fast or take the oil or you know, whatever you need. And then you look at your left and your right, and Nigel the atheist and um, Sandy the Sikh are killing it, getting first class, getting two ones, like doing well in life. And you're thinking like, they don't have God. Or you speak to them about, oh, you come into, I don't know, night vigil or pray meeting or whatever. And they're like, no, like, I'm not a Christian. I'm, I don't believe in it. And they're doing well in life. And so the, the Christianity you're pitched with uh, starts to fall down when you realize that it's, you don't necessarily need it in the way that it's been promoted to you right. if you just work, work hard and, and right. whatnot. Uh, and that's the danger. So now you're seeing that people are graduating, people are getting their jobs, they're, they're doing really well. There's kind of like a moving middle class, emerging middle class of, of a lot of black people are soon to enter in. And th that um, coupled with what we were raised with in terms of cr Christianity does begin to divide because you feel like I don't actually need a Lord. Um, and I think that's where the importance of having robust, uh, the robust presentation of the gospel, um, not in mm. a prosperity sense, but in a fact of like, we're broken, we need a Lord to save us, we need a Lord to keep us, how that looks like in the church. So regardless of what your life is like, uh, rich, poor, uh, there is an importance and it's even a challenge for those who do have money, who do have wealth, yeah. uh, to be mindful of that, lest uh, they forsake their souls. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I, there's, there's, there's mass dangers. Um, and even and that's why when I speak to my friends, they don't really see the need for Christianity because they think, I'm successful, right. life is fine, like I don't need the Lord. Yeah. So, so, so effectively, you're, you're trying to drive them to see they shouldn't judge their right standing with God and how good their lives are going materially but they should be considering this spiritually in light of what the scriptures say. Now, yeah. we're fortunate um, that we have in the audience um, some, some pastors, um, and he's not prepared for this, and I'm looking this way, but he's seated that way. Um, but um, we have in attendance uh, the pastor of Br uh, Brixton, elder of Brixton Local <laughs> Church, um, Pastor Yannick Christos Wahab, mm. sitting mm. next to his wonderful wife. Um, and what I wanted to ask is that, that similar question. Uh, Yannick, how are you pastoring a generation of people who are experiencing upward mobility? How are you, what, 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 what does the gospel say to people also who are unchurched who think, I don't need the Lord in light of the relative uh, prosperity that I'm seeing in my life? 
And could you could you stand and address us? <laughs> You're actually cheeky. <laughs> actually cheeky. <laughs> That's an excellent contribution. Thank you. Um, yeah, excellent contribution in particular, um, given that I gave you no notice. Um, so I'm going to ask Mike a question now, and I, I want to sort of hear your, your, your thoughts on this. Um, so there's a lot of technology. Um, this is going to be, I think, at some stage, put onto SoundCloud, um, Spotify, iTunes, um, and we're going to talk about it on Twitter. I think Swazi gave you the hashtags and so on. So many sort of like social media platforms. Um, and I think that's because in, in large part we've had so much um, advance in technology. So the question I have now is, um, seeing as technology has improved accessibility to the faith so that we can listen to our favorite preachers online and, and, and those kind of things, um, some are suggesting that attending church in person physically is no longer required or necessary. What does Christ and his word say to that, Mike? Yeah, I just got to church. Um, you, <laughs> sorry, I'm, I'm trying to process my thoughts because, uh, sorry to break the rules, but I just, I think it's gonna eat me up on this, I say. I think the, the main reason, sorry, that we like, uh, okay, I don't think the devil's as kind of half as smart as we make him. I think the reason why the world's the way it is is because we don't have enough Christians who kind of understand their identity, who know who they are. And thus we need to kind of prop up God's words with lots of different things um, when really we just need Christians who understand what it means to be a Christian. And that's it, not a super Christian, strong, just a Christian. We just need more Christians. Um, cool. So on, on this uh, kind of church point, so this is actually interesting because I actually work in the, so my, my, my PhD is looking at philosophy and tech, um, particularly, to be honest, the internet, but I have friends that talk about AI. So I'm always talking to them about AI and VR and stuff like that. And um, there, there are actually moves to simulate kind of content experiences through VR, you may know about already. Um, and obviously, you know, next door is simulating church experiences, perhaps. You know, maybe there's a time, there's, there's snow, so the pastor sets up a church in his house, and you guys put your VR sets, and you can just be there, right? And that is the future. The, this is what will happen, is it's going to become very cheap. As with the computer, initially it's like, what? And then everyone has it in their house, and it's like, okay, cool. So the question becomes, well, is this the kind of development? Is, oh, it's not far. Oh, sorry. The question, oh, God, it's very different. Sorry. If you couldn't hear me before, sorry. The question becomes, is this a development that kind of aids the church? Um, and, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, for the most part, I'm inclined to say absolutely not, simply because if you look at Acts and you look at the Ecclesia as we know it, uh, I don't think it's old-fashioned to think it's about people coming together to 
observe the law uh, and to share stories and to hear from each other and to be discipled. And, and it's hard to do that with distance. And one thing a pastor right. told me once, it was quite deep. He said, distance creates distortion. And I was like, it's one of those words you hear. And, you go, and, it's, this, and it's true. I think when you are far away from people, um, you don't have an immediate context that you can use to test out the things you're learning. And I think that's the, one mm. of the greatest things about church is that you learn something and then you live with people where you have to kind of make sense of what it means. Mm. And with VR and people far away, it, 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 it makes it a bit difficult. And to speak to this point and the last point you made about kind of upward social mobility, again, by the way, it's a chimera. It's just a way to keep you working in the capitalist society we live in. But away from that, um, the, the, the major thing people understand is money and success only reveals what's in a man's heart. It doesn't change much. It just reveals what's in your heart. So a Christian goes, whatever way I can serve the Lord, whatever tool I have at my disposal, I will use it. Uh, someone who's not saved, because uh, people say this thing, oh, you know, when I was young, I was, you probably wasn't saved. Because if you're older now and somehow you don't love God because you made a bit of money, <laughs> no, m- money should make it, m- 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 money, m- money should now be a tool at your disposal through which you can serve God even more. Absolutely. So to speak. That's, it's just a tool. You know, so, and equally, tech becomes a tool. You know, may, may, maybe somehow now through drones, uh, it's easier for us to go into the unreached people group, the 3,000 odd of them in India. Maybe tech will make it easier for I mean, you see how quickly it becomes a tool for the believer? Whereas for the, for the unbeliever, it's a crutch. It's something they need. It's something they love. It's something they quite frankly, worship more than God himself. If a bit of success, a promotion at work, makes you fall out of love with, with the very ground you're standing on, you're probably not standing on the ground. It's deep, deep. I think, I think um, that is a, an extremely good point. Um, and I think it might be a, a good opportunity for us to to bring some audience participation um, in even more. But this time, I'm not going to pick on anyone. Um, I'm going to ask, does anyone have a question or a reflection that they would like to offer? And Tope is going to be going around with a microphone. Um, we've got one over here. And in particular, you can address it at individual members of the panel or the panel generally. But, Mike, but, Mike, but you ju- that, yeah. just to be absolutely clear, though, the prosperity gospel is not a gospel. So, 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 so if, you, if you came to believe in Jesus because of what he can give you, uh, you know, and it's a kind of, I want more, you're not saved. And, and, and let me be clear about why we say this. And, and, and no, no, but here's why it's so important. We, we, guys, we, guys, we live, we, give me a second. Can we respect but the le, but person le, but speaking? Le, but also, let's be, very, let's be very clear. What, what we need in this age of ridiculous confusion, um, especially about the gospel, which is the very essence of everything, is clarity. I, I, I will not invent a new gospel for us or pontificate or try and, you know, be, it's, it's very clear. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The gospel is about you being in right relationship with 
God. That's the point through Jesus' death and atonement. That's the gospel. Everything else is an add-on, and it's beautiful to think about. But if you, were, if you came to Christ because a man at the front who's very eloquent and very powerful made you think you can get more by just coming, and, and it doesn't matter about the person, just give me the stuff. If that's how you came, then I say, assess yourself. And ask people to really help you. Because debating, you know, whether your heart is kind of great, that's something. I, and I believe at times, as Christians, we'll have to go through those parts where our heart, might, we might see our flesh, and we have to go, okay, cool. That's all good. That's, I mean, that's going to happen. You're going to grow. You're gonna, but the very essence of your salvation, namely the terms of it, if you don't, here's what I say, if you don't, under, if you don't think, you're not sure, you're probably not. So, so let's, let's, let's work at it. Rather than go, I'm probably all right, and then you find out you're not. Why is this important? If your heart bleeds at Matthew 7, 24, you ought to be concerned. Because what a shame it would be if you came to Black Barrier and lots of other events, and you came and you were there, only to be told, I don't know you. Because uh, obedience is the fruit of love, and if you're not obeying, God, right? Who's to say you love him? This is my, my real heart, is that people would, at the beginning of their salvation, at, at the start, at the very genesis, understand the very terms. Because if they don't, we ought to keep it. So, uh, there's, a, there's a stat that says uh, 3.2 uh, billion people in the world are Christians. That's a lot of Christians. These days, you tell people, I'm a Christian. Everyone says, yeah, me too. 3.7 billion. Half of them were born into it. <laughs> Doesn't that kind of get you kind of scared that that, that, that stat that we all go where the more we're the biggest religion in the world? Half of the people were born into it, and they just yeah, it's just who I am. And now they're trying to be live better lives. When we haven't really questioned, do you even get the terms of the salvation? Do you get it? And that's my real desire. That, that's my heart. So I'm sorry if, if it kind of sounds like I'm saying no one saved. That's not, that's not my desire at all. It's to really ask us to really understand the terms, especially at the Genesis. Because if that foundation ain't right, and you keep on building, build as tall as you want. It will crash. At some stage. Thank you, Mike. I'm gonna, I'm gonna come. No, no, don't be sorry. <laughs> we asked you here for this very reason. Look, um, you said your name was, was it Sam? Simon. Simon. Apologies, Simon. Um, I think what's happened here in terms of the answer, I think Mike is hitting at a very important point and a, an important note that we shouldn't presume upon our salvation, and it's important um, periodically and regularly to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. And people do, um, because the Bible tells us that they, they will do. Um, presume upon their salvation in Christ and ultimately there will be a time when the Lord comes back and that experience will be felt and it's, it, it would be a heartbreaking one to experience. Um, and then I think what Simon is also getting at is um, how do we disciple Christians who are experiencing the temptation of and experiencing a temptation, for example, that their parents wouldn't have been able to guide them through because ultimately they wouldn't have had the resources. They wouldn't have experienced having much and being rich in this present world. Um, and so the child who comes from that home, who has now come to know the Lord, doesn't come now with perfect knowledge of how to walk with the Lord, is growing and is learning and now faces this new temptation. And I think it's important then at that point we look at Paul's words um, to Timothy. He says... As for the rich in this present age, he's talking to, sorry, I should say where I am, 1 Timothy 6, uh, 17 onwards. It's really important to note the first thing here that's not blatantly in the passage. Paul's talking to Timothy and he's giving him instructions to how to speak to the church. So he's saying this, 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 this what's coming next is effectively for Christians to learn how to use their money. He says, as for the rich in this present world. He's admitting that actually some Christians might experience a degree of material blessing. Um, and he says to them, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. What Paul instructs us to do there ultimately isn't to denounce riches, but is to recognize that this doesn't belong to me, it belongs to the Lord. And as I have these funds, as I have material blessings, as Mike alluded to. The regenerate heart is one that should be thinking, how can I use these resources 
to best serve Christ and to serve his people. So I think we're, what we're doing here now when we're thinking about the church and this upward mobility issue is for those who are in the church and who are Christians, pastors and fellow believers ought to be discipling one another to say, how are you using your resources? How is the money that you're sort of taking in being used? Is your, if we were to go through your bank statements or how you use your money, would it indicate someone whose heart's desire is to make known Christ and his gospel? Would your spending habits show that? Those are questions that we have to be asking ourselves as we come to this new generation of having some money. But then also alongside those questions, if we're answering no repeatedly to these questions, then maybe that is the point in which we have to go is my use of this such that it's demonstrating a love for money which can ruin my soul? Um, do we have time for a couple more questions? Tope, no, no, Tope says no questions. Tope says no questions. Okay, I'm gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna be naughty and I'm gonna ask one question and it's a concluding question and you'll show me grace, yeah? Okay, <laughs> so I'm gonna ask a concluding question um, for those on the panel um, and it's one that I think um, I would have liked to have got to a bit earlier, but forgive me for that. Um, actually, I'm going to ask this directly to Mary, actually. I don't think, I don't think actually, we need everyone else's reflections. Um, as a woman... Do you have a preference for 10 or 11? Okay, Mary, Mary has indicated a preference for question 11 that we've prepared. Mm. As a woman, when you consider the lack of mm, marriageable men, <laughs> it's about to happen. <laughs> How long we got? Okay. I'm joking. I'm not killing, I'm not shooting, I'm not shooting Maybe. today. Guys, let me land, let me land, please, please, let me land, let me land. One house, one house, one house. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Okay, so Mary. Ah, uh, ah, uh, guys, please, 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 please. If we're quiet now, there might be an opportunity for some of you to offer your, your responses. I, I see that this has clearly engaged some of you. Um, as a woman, Mary, when you consider the lack of marriageable men in your demographic, so let's say black British men living in and around London and the places you frequent. Do you think the offerings by church singles ministries are underwhelming, ineffective? <laughs> Should they even be priorities for the church? Should the church engage with that? Does it matter at all? What are your reflections on that? That's a really hard question. Um, ooh, let me think. Um, of course, I think in our context, and in most churches, demographic-wide, so white, but anyway, different cultures, there's usually more women than men. Um, and you get plus 24, 25. And so this is so funny. I'll share a story. So last week in my church, there was like a visitor that came with her friend. She's not here, so that's good. <laughs> and she kind of like whispered to her friend, but over her, she was like, all the guys here are married. And she said in a, and she said in a sense of like, she scoped the room, she visited this new church and she's thinking, well, what am I doing? Like kind of, it was a despairing tone. And I was like, join the cutest. But no, but there's a, but there's a, but yeah, there is, <laughs> yeah, click, click. Um, I don't, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that's the church's issue primi primarily in a sense of, of course, we want churches to um, preach the gospel. We want men to be saved. We want men to be discipled. Uh, and if, if Lord willing, we want men to, to be married. I think, I think um, I've got two thoughts. I think one thing women need to be um, mindful of is that, um, that they won't let the pressures of society or their parents um, push them to marry men that are ungodly um, or immature. Um, because I see that pressure of sisters now, even marrying unbelievers. Um, and I, I think, of course, marriage is a good thing, but the law will keep us if we don't get married. Um, we still have the hope of the gospel. We still have glory. Um, and another thing of, this is, this is a mute point, but just the consideration of, 
um, possibly getting married older or marrying younger as well. Mm. I know some of my sisters are triggered. Um, <laughs> but yeah, just to consider that. And, and of course, the Lord, the Lord is faithful. Um, I'm seeing like the Lord is saving men every day. He's in the business of saving sinners. So um, I think as long as, we, as, long as churches prioritize uh, enforcing what biblical manhood is, responsibility, discipleship, what it means to be a godly man, what it means to be a leader, what it means to be a servant in the church, um, Lord willing, there will be marriageable men in the church. So what Mary has given us there is um, an understanding that ultimately marriage does show us the shape of the gospel, um, Christ's relationship with the church, um, but singleness also shows us the sufficiency of the gospel. Amen. Um, and that's an important point to, for us to, to take to heart. Yeah. Um, we're not lesser Christians because we're not married. Amen. Um, final, final, final point for Mike and for Israel. In three sentences or less. <laughs> this is going to be hard. What would you say to someone who you meet for the first time who says, you are black, African, how can you be a Christian? Isn't that the white man's religion? In three sentences. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. In, 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 in one minute or less, and you can, what you can do, you can signpost the things that you would go into more detail on. Because I know you'd want to have a relationship with that person and so on. But yeah. I would start Wait, by saying... Getting getting <laughs> they've actually put a timer up. Yeah. Like, go, Israel. I would start by saying Christianity is not the white man's religion. Um, as a matter of fact, it doesn't belong to any particular demographic. From the very beginning, the church was in three continents. It was in Asia, it was in Africa, and it was in Europe. It started as a diverse community and it remains the most diverse religious community in existence. It has never belonged to any particular demographic ever. The earliest church to be founded was the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. That's a black church. Um, the church spread through Asia, it spread through Europe, um, Rome up to England, it spread um, all across the north of Africa, um, and so it has never belonged to any demographic. Therefore, what we see coming out of the question of Christianity is the white man's religion is a distortion of Christianity at a particular historical point rather than it being the narrative of Christianity historically throughout. Thank you, Israel. Israel did that in one minute and four seconds. Yeah, he did. Um, Mike, did you want to add anything? Kingsley, do you want to add anything? No, I'm good. Mike, <laughs> Mike did that in five seconds. Um, guys, this uh, was the first panel. Um, thank you so much for engaging, for listening. This was Black Brewer.